All right, friends, welcome back to the show. It is my honor to be joined for what I believe to be the third time by Dr. Esau McCauley. How are you, sir? Thank you. I think this might be the first podcast that I did three times. So I don't know. I don't know what you get for that. Maybe you're just tired of me after this will be the last one. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not saying you're coming back. Like, I'm not promising anything. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, yeah uh, thir- third and final. It's like a trilogy. <laughs> mm-hmm, it is. Rarely is like the sequel or the trilogy better than the first one. But I've got a okay. feeling about this one. I, I have a really good okay. feeling. We had you on early. We talked about like your dissertation stuff, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Which one? Like what epistle was that on? Sharing in the like, Son's like, Inheritance. Galatians. Galatians. Okay. So Galatians. We got that. And then uh, yeah. we had one like six months ago. And you told me that you had a memoir coming out. And we said okay. we're going to do another yeah, I did. one. Okay. And the book you have out, the title is How Far, How, How Far to the Promised Land. I started wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you, do, wait, 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 wait. Do you have the real version? You're showing me the real version Bro. of the book. I yeah, don't even do have, have that. It? Like, it, it's amazing that like Bro. you have the real version. I'm going to have to send some emails to people. So I can look at the I'm, hardback. You're like flexing on me. This is ridiculous. Anyways, hopefully one day I'll get, I'll get the real version too. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just saying, like, I feel like you should put some respect to my name because your publisher clearly yeah. has by giving me a copy of this. Now, I also have the PDF, which I was like, I'm not going to read that. Give me the hardback and I'm going to yeah. read this. And I did. And I was absolutely, positively blown away. I was a few chapters in. I was going, my guy Esau did something really special here. And I'm going to ask you a question that I had an intern asked me years ago. He asked me, Luke, if someone was going to play you in a movie, who would it be? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think about who's going to play me in a movie. And then so I asked my intern. I was like, intern, who? I, I didn't call him by his name. I just called him intern. I said, intern, I don't know. Like, who do you think should play me? And his response was, Luke, I think a lovable, I'm not going to say the word he said, like jackass, a lovable jackass should play you. And I was like, okay. when do we call our bosses a lovable jackass? Like, I don't feel like we should do that. Anyway, I'm traumatized by the question, so I'm still like struggling to ask it, but you wrote a book that is so good. It is a compelling story. It really wouldn't be beyond uh, belief to me that someone would say, let's make this a movie. So if that did happen, who's playing you? Who is the lead in your life story? Well, uh, one of the interesting things to say is that if they were to make a movie about this book, I wouldn't be the star Um, because the narrative isn't focused just on me it's focused on the people around me so it's kind of hard for me to imagine who would play me in the book you just jesus the, the juked me right there be, like you just jesus no no I, I thought about who would play my mother i can tell you that viola oh, Davis that's of play course my mother if they ever make a movie and denzel washington can play my father and so okay. I, I thought about that. I've never thought about who could play me in the movie, but um, someone's asked me this question before, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it out there. I don't believe that the universe has any power. I believe that God has power. But, <laughs> but if they do make a movie of it, I, I, Viola, Davis, Viola Davis gets first dibs on my mother. Isn't there a rumor that Michael Jordan said something about that with um, like the, the Nike movie that just came out? Like Viola Davis played his oh. mother. And I think he said something like she has to play. There was some condition about her playing oh. the role of his mother. So, I mean, dare I say you're in rarefied air. <laughs> you're being very kind to me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. 
Okay, so we're right there. Okay. Um, I know you as a scholar. I know you as someone who studied under Tom Wright, which is like a, a mm-hmm. big deal in my book. Uh, when I first had you on the podcast, uh, where were you teaching? Was it Rochester? Rochester, or, New York, like, at Northeastern Seminary. Okay, when when I first heard like Northeastern say, "Hey, talk to this guy. He's studying under Tom Wright." I was like, "Okay, that's that's legit to me." Um, I, I know you as someone who helped uh, teach us about Lent, and you like beautiful little book on that. I loved it. Um, what you did here is like you told your life story, and you opened me up not just to your story, but like you said, this is the story of your parents, your grandparents, even your great grandmother and beyond. And you did something different. Like this isn't you writing as um, someone from the academy, but this is you writing as someone who, who, who lived life. What, what made you decide to write a story like this? Yeah. Well, my father um, was a truck driver. And in 2017, I'm from the South, I'm from Alabama. In 2017, he died in a single car accident um, in California, far from everybody that he knew. And when his his role as a truck driver was kind of indicative of the role that he played in our life, because for most of my life he was away. He he left us um, to kind. Of, he abandoned our family when I was quite young, and when he was around, he was um, violent and he suffered from addictions and all of those kinds of things. And so uh, when he died, it was kind of this complicated moment in my life. And pretty soon thereafter, I began, I spoke to my mom like the day after he died. And I knew what they were going to, my family was going to ask me and I knew what I had to do, which is to write the eulogy. And yeah. when I told my mom, Hey mom, I want to, I want to write the eulogy for, I want to do the eulogy for my father. My mom says, yeah, we've already talked about this to other siblings. And my younger sister, Marquita say, Daniel, that's what they call me. He's the only one who would tell the truth. And so, you know, you're a pastor. One of the things that you do in the eulogy is you have to sit down with the family to know something about the deceased. And you sit down and you try to figure out who he is and what he's about. Um, And so when when you do a eulogy, you have to ask, you have to speak to members of the family to find out what they're about. And so when I sat down and learned about my father, um, and, and the purpose of doing those things, when you, when you learn those sto- stories as a pastor, is to, to tie that person's narrative into the wider purposes of God and to give that family mm-hmm. a sense of closure. But I couldn't return to his past um, without turning, returning to my past and making sense of it. And so the process uh, of writing that eulogy led to me uncovering all these truths about his past and um my own my own childhood and those stories kind of stick with me you know sometimes the past won't let you go until you tell it i felt like the past wouldn't let me go until i I wrote an ending of sorts and so how far Mm -hmm. to the promised land was was my chance to 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 write an, an, an ending to some of those unfinished stories and hopefully for myself and for the readers to tie those stories into the wider purposes of God and what he was up to in the world. And so those stories just wouldn't come, come wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't leave me alone. And the, the, the eulogy happens in 2017. I don't write the book until five years later, but you know, there is that time in your life where you first encounter the truth. And then there is a yeah. longer period of time before you feel like you're ready to share that truth to the world. 
And I finally came to the place in 2022 that I was able to begin working on this project and share this with the rest of the world. Here's a line from uh, the book. You say this, um, it was not enough for me merely to survive, nor could I have accepted partial truths about the people whose lives shaped mine. I had to find beauty. I had to see something in the struggle itself that was worth of remembering and carrying forward. That was Sophia's gift to me. She showed me that a black life could be lived with honor through faith, even when the world was set against you. I would need to do something with this gift. When you find beauty in the story of your dad, who is an extremely complicated figure, um, correct me if I get these details wrong, and and all due respect, I apologize. His uh, grandfather had a tragic accident starting a fire one night, uh, which led to a house fire that um, caused two of what would have been your uncles. Yeah, there's there's a story in which before my father's born, it's his, it's his father. Before my father is born, mm-hmm. there's a house fire that leads to the death of two, two uh, people who would have been his siblings. And my father and yeah. then his brother Barney, they're born after the fire. And in some sense, mm-hmm. these my father and his his younger brother were always seen in comparison with the the two children who passed away, and that event kind of marks my father, and it determines the relationship that he has with this dad, and some of the trauma that from that relationship kind of makes its way into our relationship. And the dad, and again, uh, Here's correct okay. me, um, and forgive. Um, but it seems, as you wrote the story, I heard that, that the man that was raising your dad and his sibling, uh, who was born after the fire, was a different man yeah. than the dad who was raising the others. The, the grandfather, that he, your grandfather was this beautiful story, like heroic, like did amazing yeah. things, kept the family yeah. together, raised, went through adversity. And then this like grief of not only losing the two children, but having to carry the weight of what he believed to be responsibility for, for these lives being lost, he was just, he just seemed like a different person yeah. after. And so yeah. he has a different, right? Is that fair? Yes, it is. That's one, and one so of, you're, yeah. Go ahead. But you're like, and so he grows up and he, your mom meets him and there's like this really awful thing. Like this boy's trouble, don't want to be around him. That sort of thing that he learns as a kid. And so even you hear these stories about your, your dad's addiction and be in and out of the home. Like it, you have a line in the book where you go like heroes and villains don't just exist. Like they're, they're made, they come from some story. So one of the things that um, I'm trying to get at in the story, which I think is true of the human experience is Mm -hmm. we're both responsible for the things that we do and we're shaped by the world around us. Yeah. And I think that too often we slide into one or the other. Yeah. So when I'm a kid, you know, it's easy to think of my father simply as a villain because of the things that he did in our family. And in some sense, he did villainous things. He he was the one who abandoned us. He was the one who stole from our family during the heights of his addiction. But he was also someone who had his own life significantly altered by trauma. And so I guess I guess what I want to say is that we live in this world where we want different parts of society wants to simplify our stories into one or the other. 
In one story, we have no agency. We're only the product of the things that happen to us and what we do doesn't matter. Or the people who are all personal responsibility. Well, no, you are responsible for what you do. And that isn't just related to our past trauma. It's related to race in America. It's, mm-hmm. it's this idea that either there is structural injustice and structural injustice explains all of the problems that afflict us as people. Or mm-hmm. there is individual responsibility and all of the problems in the world can be explained via those things. And so what I was trying to get at through the course of how far the promised land is the ways in which those two things intersect with one another. And how understanding the complexities of people's narratives doesn't absolve the things people for the things that they do. They put those things in the context. And so this slow unfolding in, in the narrative of an increasingly um, complicated person who emerges across the book is intentional because it reflects my own development. And so when you, there's three parts of the book. Part one is mostly my perspective on the story as a child, as I experienced it. Part two is kind of the, the looking at that same set of circumstances from a different angle. And so I hope that the reader allows me to be that cute, but it's what I was trying. I was trying to, to convey in the, in the narrative, um, the complicated stuff about, about my father. So this is the reason why I don't tell you some of the stuff you just talked about. I don't tell you, I don't tell any of that story until the second half of the book, because that's how I found out about it. I had that experience as a child and then the other parts of his narrative I learned later as an adult. Uh, sorry, I should have said spoiler alert, but uh, listeners, <laughs> go go get the book, read it. You're going to be happy that you listen to my advice anyway. Um, so spoiler alert there, my bad. But there are so many layers to this. And like you said, you're learning this information as an adult who has to do the eulogy for your father. Yeah. As you're hearing these stories, what emotions are initially coming to, to you as you're hearing these stories about all these things that impacted you in really profound ways, but you never knew the the genesis for some of the behavior that you had to live through in your childhood? I think one of the things, well, so the book itself is, 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 um, is structured around the eulogy. Um, and so yeah. the book opens with my father's death and then it closes, even though there's, there's an entire book of data in between it but the final chapter actually recounts the funeral itself i'm kind of i'm really happy that uh, penguin random house allowed me to tell this a long book about writing a sermon <laughs> but it is it's about all of the things that That's went funny. into yeah. in, into writing the close of that uh, of that sermon and so the the story that i tell in the eulogy itself and, and most of the content is original to the actual eulogy they maybe edited down some because they didn't, you know, they wouldn't let a, the the whole sermon get in there. It was too long. But what I what I what I articulated in the eulogy is what I articulated in the book, which is which is my own emotional journey. When we're children, hatred is a very simple emotion. It's kind of an inspiring emotion. You can say, "I don't want to be like this bad person." I want to be something different. And it kind of, it sends you on a journey. But hatred isn't sufficient to build a life. And it's not sufficient to really parent your children well, right? You can't parent your children simply trying not to be like someone who treated you poorly. 
And one of the things that happens to me as a pastor is that I would I would meet people who had made a mess of the first half of their lives or whatever that was happening before they came into the church. And I would say to them, you know, there was always the chance to begin again. That's the whole point of grace is that our stories always have a chance for a God kind of inspired plot twist. And so the more I said that to other people, the harder it was for me to deny that possibility to my father. And so over the course of my life, it wasn't that we reconciled or it wasn't that these stories completely changed everything that I knew. It confirmed this reality that part of forgiveness involves wanting the best for people, even if you don't benefit from it, right? I had already missed the point in my life where I could have a father who would do all of the stereotypical things that dads do. So I was beyond the place of wishing for a dad to take me to baseball games. But I had gotten to the point mm -hmm. that I, I could wish for him to have a, a better ending to his story. And the more stuff that I learned about him, the more um, that feeling um, was something that was solidified in me. Hmm. You also, as you grow up, you find more layers to how um, some of his choices have repercussions in your life. Uh, yeah. You know, buying a first home, there's some things that popped up that yeah. um, you didn't understand. And I always wondered, and maybe uh, one of your endorsers, Beth Moore, uh, mm -hmm. wrote uh, a memoir, uh, maybe I read a month and a half ago. Yeah. And... <clears throat> Her story involves trauma from a father, vastly different than what you described, but obviously trauma from a father. And at the end of the book, she's having to, to forgive him. And it, doing a eulogy, either you have to lie or you have to yeah. deal with your own... It, I don't know about you. I, like, I did my mom's eulogy, vastly different circumstances than this. Um but there are always complexities in relationships. And yeah. I, I can't say that I understand like you, but there are complexities. And you said a lot a second ago about like, even if it doesn't benefit, you have to forgive him. Doesn't it seem like in some ways that like it does benefit you though, even to let go of yeah. whatever so, resentment yeah, is there? So I, I, guess, I guess when I said it doesn't benefit me, I think that forgiveness for some people is a necessary step towards healing. And so, yes, yeah. I do benefit from that by closing um, that door. You know, everybody has these moments in life where you go back and you visit these, these um, incidents over and over again, and you wish that you had said the right thing or done the right thing. But then you realize that, you know, I can't go back in time and fix that moment but I can't end it. Mm -hmm. I could end that endless cycle of returning to it over and over again. And sometimes you can end that by forgiving yourself or forgiving the person who wounded you. And so, yes, that's the bit that, that benefit exists. But when I say we don't benefit from it, what I meant was I don't get the childhood back. Even if I forgive him, yeah. I don't get that back. That's gone yeah. forever. And so the dream of having kind of a normal p parent, son father son relationship w w was taken away from me and so that's just something that i had to make peace with that i wasn't forgiving him 
so that I could get back what I lost. I was forgiving him so that we both might move forward to a better future. And you're right. Whenever, when one of the things that, that at least when I talk about a, a clergy version doing a eulogy is that mm-hmm. we make vows before God to, to tell the truth, right? We like, you're like the yeah. whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so mm-hmm. we can't lie and just simply be nostalgic and paint a picture of the person that didn't exist. And so one of the, the, the book opens with um, the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, mm-hmm. because it's actually the passage that I use in the eulogy. And the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's a famous Bible story where, you know, there was the Pharisee who says, I think I'm, thank God I'm not like everyone else. And then the tax collector comes in and he says to me, Lord, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. And that's the tax collector's uh, major confession. Can you hear me? I feel like I'm, am I cutting in and out? Yeah, you're, you cut out like twice. I don't know uh, if that's the I, Holy I, Spirit. I don't or, know or not, if it's but... like, um, my internet see, says that it's really good. I don't know what's going on. Um, Just keep going. You're good. So the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the the in that story, the tax collector is, is lauded as the hero because he says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the, and the scene cuts right there where it says the, 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 the tax collector goes home justified. And that's true, right? That we can, we can rejoice as, uh, that, that this tax collector had this moment of turning. But the reality is before that tax collector had that moment of tur- turning, his whole life he inflicted trauma on people. The yeah. tax collector w- 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 was, was someone who robbed and extorted and probably ruined people's lives. Right. And we don't see any of that story. All we see is that close up moment of forgiveness that we rejoice in. But there's consequences of his life. And so one way of looking at the book is, well, what happens to the people who were affected by the tax collector's sin before he repents? And so if you're going to actually tell the tax collector's whole story, you would tell up, you would talk about that moment of repentance. But you talk about the life to do that beforehand. And Mm -hmm. so in the eulogy. I was attempting to do both of those things. I was trying to show the places in which my father's life makes a turn towards the living God, but also the ways in which his actions create consequences that, that, that echo throughout our family's lives. Hmm. There's a lot of layers to your family, and there are a lot of people whose story are extremely compelling and interesting. It, the the is Sophia who would be Sophia's gift, the, like she's prophetic gifts. Which I'm curious as someone who's studied under Tom Wright, um, how we we make sense of someone who has prophetic knowledge of the future in very substantial ways according to your family's tradition. Uh, my Pentecostal friends are like, yeah, I'm all in on that. It yeah. makes perfect sense. Uh, <laughs> How, how do you reconcile the story of a woman who could accurately prognosticate, you know, uh, a pregnancy, a child, like these sort of things? Like, yeah, where does that fit in with your your? So one one framework? of the thi- one of the things that I tried to do was respect the people's stories as they told them, mm-hmm. and so the way that my family talked about Sophia is that she had to get the prophecy. And that God gave her the ability to like predict these things are going to happen in the lives of our family. And she was a deeply Christian person. She knew the Bible back and forth, even though she was illiterate. She would just quote the King James. The King James mm. would just enter. And she would just talk. She would pray to God. I mean, she would like have the Bible in her hand, you know, looking it back and yeah. forth, praying to Jesus, even though she couldn't read the book. 
And so what I want to say is I don't know where she got that gift from. But I, I, I do wanna I do wanna maintain that the things that she heard from God in her prayer life had a tremendous impact on our family. And I, I don't know if our family like married. I feel like yeah. th- that's yeah. such an understatement yeah. because there's a story where she has well, well, you, a you, gun can't, you, can't tell, you, can't, you can't tell the story. I can't tell that. <laughs> you can't tell the story. Like, Bro, give, give the re- I give, mean, give the reader, give the read, leave, leave, leave something on the bone. I'll say there, okay, there, there, okay, there's a moment, there's a moment where Sophia's gift and some Sophia's encounter with God has a tremendous impact on what my family becomes. And they're they're they're, they're like there's two stories that involves a gun. That and involves then, a gun. It involves hold, a gun. Listen, okay, then put it like I already this. said that. I already <laughs> put that out there. Let's just finish it. It involved a gun. Hearing a word so wait, from God. Wait, excuse, that, listen, if you were like I, that's say, all I'm saying. If you if you were watching Endgame, you wouldn't say, "Hey, dude, guess what? Thanos at the end. They come out of the thing. But, I can't hold it. I like, just wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Just but wait, they do show wait. you. They show you some stuff in the trailer. I'm yes. just trying to give people a little bit of trailer. I'm just saying, there's a gun, and she hears a word from God, and it changes the life of your family. Yes. That's all I'm saying. That's all you're it, saying. That's chapter one. That's all I'm saying. That's it. Yeah, I didn't say I it's on page ninety. I yeah. didn't say that it is on page ninety, but I'm not saying yeah, you're that. You're not saying that. Yeah. No, it is. It is. It's like, it's funny because um, they want me that, you know, I, these stories are precious to me and they're precious to my family. And they, it's so, it's so weird because they make sense within the context of a narrative. And I want the reader to have the same kind of emotional experience I had when I read the story in full. And so forgive yeah. me for being protective. It's like, I should tell you enough to make you want to experience it. But then I want you to have that sense of wonder. Actually, the interesting thing is the first chapter that I, that I wrote in the book is actually Sophia's gift. It's the chapter that deals with um, her story. And it, it's, 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 it's a story that, that deeply affects me because she, grows, she, she begins life um, as an illiterate tenant farmer. And she works her way up to begin to yep. build a life for herself. And then some things happen to her that are, that are complicated and, and, and I think fundamentally unjust that send her life in a different direction. But nonetheless, sure. I feel like her testimony still echoes. It echoes down, it, it echoes in me. And so I, I, I want I just want to give her, her, her full moment of glory mm-hmm. for the reader. Yeah. Well, no more spoilers on Sophie's story, <laughs> Sophia's story. But you find yourself okay to to let the story, uh, as it's affected and shaped the life of your family, yeah. be even if it might be outside of the theological framework, which maybe you read scripture and understand yeah. the work of the. Like it, you're you're well, good I'm, with that. I'm, how, I'm do you, how do you get I'm to not, that place? I'm not, not anti prophecy. Um, okay, I think that I think that my family may attribute that prophecy to things that I wouldn't attribute it to. But Sophia attributes the prophecy to like God. There's this thing that, that that's common in in certain southern cultures. It's called being born with a veil. It's like a small mm-hmm. membrane that it that it that covers the face of a child when it's born. 
And so the legend has it that Sophia got her gift of prophecy from there. And I don't agree with that's where it comes from. I don't feel like God puts a veil over certain kids and they have these mystical gifts. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't doesn't communicate with people. I guess I'll put yeah. it this way. I wouldn't necessarily recommend people following stars to get to Jesus, but the Magi managed to do it. And so God isn't limited by what makes us comfortable. And mm-hmm. I want I want to say that I believe that God worked in and through the her life. It's the same thing that you hear about people who are in closed countries who encounter God in dreams and visions that may be outside of what is normal for us. And so I'm very careful, unless it's like anti-biblical, to immediately discount something that just because it's different than my experience. Well said. Well said. Okay, I want to tell another story. Okay. I feel like you're not going to cut me off because I'm not going to give too many details. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like just let me do part let you of this. Cook. Let you cook. I'm going to let you cook. Let, you cook, let, you let cook, me cook. Me let Pick me cook. Me okay. Um, you have an interaction with someone who is near and dear to your life, who is uh, a white person. Uh, for my listener, I feel like they figure out you might not be a white person. Yes. A person of color. I'm a person of much lighter color. This person reflects more the pigment of my skin. And it is not someone who is a casual uh, connection to you, but it is very close to you. And they express um, racism. And there is a turn in the story, and you make an observation that the turn in this person's heart seemed to be predicated upon what a pastor at a church said to this person. Mm-hmm. And you say some you say some of the extent that the church has done its work. This yeah. pastor didn't know you, didn't know how, like wasn't in your your story, didn't know you from Adam for the most part. Um, but I like that you use the phrase the church had done its work. Yeah. Help me understand why you use that phrase to describe that experience. Yeah. So I, w- I will say this. There are a few indulgent parts in my book. And the most indulgent chapter is called Fools Fall in Love. And that's the story. That's the chapter you're taking from. And it's the story of how um, I met my wife. And it's the story of the early years of our marriage. And it's in that context. We're in an interracial marriage. And it's in that context that, that we experienced the um, the conversation that, that you spoke about. And what I, what I wanted to say in that in that story was this idea that sometimes um, God takes us to unexpected places and reveals his 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 goodness in ways that we, we might not expect. And in a lot of in a lot of the, the, the narrative, there are people whom on first instance we might be willing to toss aside from my mm-hmm. father to other characters in the book. And the the people in the book who um, treat us poorly at the beginning are also people who you might be tempted to toss aside. But over time, they change. And they come to this better understanding of what God is up to in the world through the work of a local church outside of our own direct intervention. And so one of the things that um, that, I, that I'm trying to get at is in in Christianity in the church we are sometimes too quick to write an ending to a story that God hasn't finished yet. Mm. And that it is important 
not to minimize the mistakes or the wounds that people inflict upon us, but to have a God-inspired confidence that none of these stories are over. And then sometimes, not all of the time, but sometimes, God can do things that we don't expect through people who have no idea. And so one of the things I would say, that, and this may be important to any pastor or clergy who listen to us, there are people for whom they're never going to listen to anything that I say. I'm never going to be invited into rooms where important decisions and ideas about race and injustice are formed. And it might be someone who pastors in an all-white context, and they may think, well, what do I have to say about diversity or equality or justice given my community? Mm-hmm. But the, the way that you teach and lead your people leads leads them back into the world. It affects how they engage their coworkers. It, it, it affects how they engage the, the people who may work um, under them. It affects how they engage the world. And so the faithful preaching and ministry of people whom I never met or who other people of color may never met that may never meet can have a tremendous impact. And I think that is a hidden glory in the church. It's the kind of work that people don't, don't see or don't hear about because people hear about me because I'm a black person. I talk about race, but it may be someone who is in an all white congregation who is explaining to people what the Bible says about the people of God they could have lasting ramifications. And in my case, it did. Hmm. Well said. Yeah, well said. There's a story. I'm going to tell stories. I feel like I'm going to get in trouble. I'm I'm just, I'm just saying like, I'm, I'm anxious right now. Okay. (laughs) Did I scare you with the Sophia stuff? I'm sorry. You came in strong. You came came in pretty strong. strong. I I get it. You got to forgive me. You got to forgive me. You know, I I respect it. Like it's your family story. You got to do your thing. Um, You have this invitation to go speak somewhere. You're yeah. not super excited to go, uh, but your kid wants to go. And so yeah. since the kid wants to go, uh, you're going to go. Like, that's yeah. the, that's the right thing speaking. to do. Look, your kid's a fan of Lecrae. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. Um, friend of the show, Lecrae. Yeah, yeah we like Lecrae here. Um, so your kid wants to go because Lecrae's there. So you go to this thing. And um, while you're there, you're asked a question that I can imagine a well-intentioned white person uh, has asked many times to a yeah. person of color in an attempt to try to understand or sympathize with what your experience is like, where they ask something about like, what's the most racist thing you've encountered? And you respond by saying, I'm, I'm going to pass on that question. Yeah. And if I may read from later in the book. Go ahead. Um, okay. Oh, you're allowed thin to ice. read from the book. You're thin, allowed. You're thin fine. ice. Thin ice. Yeah, like I'm just the saying. The ice is thick now. Okay. Thank you. That's what I wanted to hear. Here's what you say. I did not answer the UNC, the location of the event, the moderator, when she asked me to recount the worst incident of racism that I had ever experienced. And I did not answer the person who attempted a casual social exchange about holiday practices at home because I did not trust them to hear part of the story apart from the whole of the story. Why do we need to not just hear part of the story? Yeah, that's funny. It's because that's funny. that might have been why I was trying to like, the whole back on the Sophia part. It's because I wanted people to get the whole community in their head. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, some people go to a mission trip and they say, oh, look how happy these people are, even though they don't have anything. I'm, they are happier than we are. Well, that's yeah. what, you saw them for two weeks. 
you didn't see them throughout the course of their lives. They're dealing with the real long-term implications of poverty. And you didn't get to see the whole emotional kind of spectrum. You saw a snapshot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes snapshots cannot capture the complexity of the human experience. And so if I tell someone about like the racism that I experienced, and they might say the only, the entirety of the black experience in America is dealing with racism. But no, I would, yes, there was racism that I experienced growing up, but there was also joy. And if I tell you about the joy and I don't tell you about the racism, and you think that everything is okay, that, you know, life is joyful. If I tell you mm-hmm. about the racism, then you don't see the joy. And so I wanted to put the joy and the pain together so they were always in the conversation with one another. And the same thing about kind of the stories or the events that happen in the book. There are these things that seem very miraculous and they're kind of fantastic and, and you'll be drawn to them. But what what I wanted the reader to see, though, is like how that moment reveals something about how God was working in the world. It's almost like when you are a pastor and you're giving a sermon illustration, you don't want the sermon illustration to like swallow up the sermon itself. And so what I wanted to be able to do for the reader is you can't exp- understand racism in, in, in my own life without also understanding poverty, without also understanding the ways in which um, we're also involved in the things that happen. We're not just um, passive people who receive injustice and without joy. And so I felt like it was these stories, these stories that we have, if we're not careful, don't do the work that we need them to do. And I thought that the only way for my story to do the work that I wanted it to do in the world was to tell the whole of it. And so that's the reason why. I, and it's almost like, do you, that's the reader. This is the real question. This is the hard question that you deal with when you, when you, when you share something. Does mm-hmm. the reader deserve your, does the reader deserve your vulnerability? Yeah. Because sometimes you're, when you're vulnerable, they can use that weakness against you. They can use that weakness to harm you. So if I say, here's this racist event that happened to me, and then someone says, well, I don't believe it, or there's another explanation, then all of a sudden your vulnerability, you're now, you're now open in front of the world, in front of the listener. And so you're at real risk. And so what I wanted to say is, rather than allowing one small snippet to be the context within which you judge black life in America, here's a multi-generational epic that might help a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, and it definitely does. It, uh, it yeah, it, it definitely puts it puts more backstory into yeah. who you are. Like I, I mean, I, I told you this before we started talking. Like it feels weird to talk to you now. Uh, I've read other books of yours, and we've talked before on the podcast. But it felt weird to see you now because it's like, oh my goodness, there's a whole backstory to Esau that I didn't like. I knew scholarship. I knew you're yeah. um, you're, you're working at, on, on Lynn, but to to know your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents, like it's, I feel like it's a different level of connection. Yeah, it, it, it is odd because one of the things that you do whenever you um, meet someone, you go somewhere, you have having dinner with a couple and you say, well, tell us how you all met. And now I can't do that. If anyone's read the book, they kind of go, well, we know how you met. <laughs> There's a whole yeah, chapter but- called fools fall in love. 
Tell us about yeah. where you grew up. Oh, we know it's Huntsville, Alabama. So maybe nobody yeah. will read it, and I'll still get to be able to have these conversations with people. But I can't do it with you anymore, Luke. If, you, no, if my you wife can't. comes, if she comes over, you know, you're just going to say, did Esau yeah. get this part right? That might be the only question you ask. That's exactly what I'd ask. But I'd also ask, um, since if we were at dinner, um, why you got to do my town wrong? Like, I would ask you that, um, which okay. I'm going to ask you now. Um, okay. You might remember where I, I live. I live Austin, Texas. And you had to talk about, like, when you went off to school, uh, that, like, your school gave you two options. And one was kind of, um, like, let's just keep things as they are, um, kind of. And the other option was to make it, like, the town of Austin. And I feel yeah. like you didn't, you didn't need to do Austin dirty but, like that. I'm first, just saying. First of all, did you read it, though? See, that's what I mean. Like, you didn't read the, and what, what you, did I choose? You, if I had to pick, what did I pick, though? Well, you picked Austin until I you Austin. like. I picked Austin. I picked Austin. But but it was like you're stepping stone on your way to maturity. It's like <laughs> yeah, you picked Austin for three years, and then you're like, oh, I grew up, and then I left Austin. I'm just saying, it's my middle name. Not only do I live in Austin, it is my literal middle. Luke I, Austin Norsworthy. I, do you I have did, anything you I want did. to say to Austin? Austin. So first of all, you can probably blame um, Tish Harrison Warren and Jonathan Warren who live in Austin, and so that might have been they, why they were on my mind. But okay. uh, what I would I say Tish. is what I was what I was trying to get in the story is when you, I grew up in an all black context and then I, I, I went from an all black context to an all white context. Mm-hmm. And when you're in an all black context, there's certain kind of intellectual or cultural options that are open to you. You know, there's kind of like the nation of Islam and kind of radical black nationalism. There's secularism or atheism. There's kind of the black church in, or they're just kind of like general nihilism. And so these are the kinds of options where I'm trying to figure out who am I? What kind of person do I want to be? And I chose kind of the black church, Christianity. When I arrived on an all white campus, those kinds of different options weren't available. There was a different set of options I had to deal with. And what that was, was kind of like the beginning of what I saw was the conservative liberal divide politically and culturally in majority white spaces. And I talked about kind of the Rush Limbaugh talk radio world and the Austin kind of liberal South. These are the two versions of the South. I didn't even know about them. Like they weren't a part of my conversation. And so what I said is that like Austin or places like Austin were helpful in so much as they like had a tradition or idea of justice, but they were also much more secular than the black church that I grew up in. And so you're right. There are places where the kind of progressive um, political context where you care about the poor and you care about suffering and, you know, you're all about those things. There, There's a kinship there. But there's also a, a way in which for a black Christian coming from Alabama, all of those things are explicitly Christian. Like we care about the poor because Jesus cares about the poor. We care about the um, stepped on peoples of the world because God cares about the stepped on peoples of the world. And that's always in the context of God also cares about the individual person and our life before him. The idea isn't just that there is an oppressor out there, but that I am also a sinner who's in need of God's forgiveness. And so that combination sometimes puts me into um, some conflict with some of my, 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 Austin yeah. type friends mm-hmm. who might who might share those kinds of commitments to the poor, but who might do it from a different spiritual context. Yeah. There's something in, in my tradition, the Church of Christ, where you have uh 
more you know politically liberal people, progressive people who have a kinship like you're describing with some of these uh, social justice causes, and so they find themselves aligned with the Black Churches of Christ as White Church of Christ people. But then the Black Churches of Christ go, well, yeah, but we agree on that, but we have um, what would be considered far more conservative. Theological yeah, convictions theological, yes. on some other things. So, yeah, we meet here, but there's some other stuff that we're, we're drastically different on these things. And the same thing would happen in the more conservative spaces where we say, yes, we like the Bible. We care about personal salvation. But the moment we start talking about the disinherited or the, or the poor, then we're seen as odd. And so one of the things that I, that I discovered in college is that I didn't fit comfortably in either one of those spaces. Yeah. And that in order for me to flourish spiritually and emotionally, I had to be true to what I thought God was was saying to me, which was what people have kind of torn apart. The black church had historically kept together and that I needed to hold it together in my own life and writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of your writing, you say in the book that you feel really called uh, as a uh, pastor to pastor through written words. Um, but you describe an experience where it feels like you didn't think um, that you knew what it was like to be a, a black preacher, yeah. uh, which is kind of a peculiar thing since you are both a preacher and black. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so if anyone's ever been to a, a black Baptist church, or maybe black Pentecostalism, there's kind of a rhythm and a tone to how a lot of black preaching um, is done, especially in the South. If you're in Alabama... yeah. Um, and probably parts of Texas. They're just kind of like, For sure. there's a way that, you know, um, black preaching is done. And I've always, I've never been someone whose preaching style was like this, even when I was growing up in an all black context. And so even though I know, and a lot of, a lot of the, um, the black preaching I grew up in was from the institution called whooping, where there's like, mm-hmm. you know, you go, huh, huh. There's a lot of kind of like, um, I don't know, there's, there's certain elements of it that were, that were kind of stereotypical of what you did. When you preached mm-hmm. and from the beginning, even when I was growing in that immersed in that context, I, I always preached the way that I spoke, kind of like I'm speaking to you now. And yeah. so for me, it was like I was not a very good um, pastor in the preaching style of the South that I knew. And yeah. that 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 reality was kind of odd. Right. Because I felt like, OK, I want to be this black church pastor, but I wasn't actually good at being a stereotypical pastor. I had to learn what exactly it was that God was calling me to do and the way that God was calling me to communicate. And it took me a long time to figure that out. I tell this story, and if you've never been to one of these things, you should go. It's probably in any city with a cluster of black people. It was Mm -hmm. um, New Year's Eve service. And Mm -hmm. so in New Year's Eve service, you would kind of bring in the new year, watch night, you would bring in the new year by preaching the whole, the whole evening. (laughs) So it will start to like, I know it sounds crazy, but it actually works. They'd bring in, in our city, they bring in like four or five churches will come in together and they would have pastors who would have like different slots. And the Mm -hmm. goal was to kind of flip the church. It was to get the church into a frenzy and it would kind of crescendo towards the midnight hour. There'd be music in between. And so I think I had like the 10 or 1030 slot. And by the time I came, the congregation was like a, a Taylor Swift concert. They were ready to lose their minds. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I went up there and I didn't have like the kind of emotional communication style that was common. And you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> and I want to tell you the amount of confidence that you have to have mm-hmm. in the power of God to preach that sermon in that context. It was, um, 
it was traumatic. I'll never forget it. And so it was, but it, it revealed to me though, it revealed to me. And, and the weird thing about it was, it wasn't that I didn't have confidence. It wasn't that I didn't yell. I was a football player. I yelled all of the time. And so it wasn't that. It was, I feel like one of the things that you might expect from me personally, if people, I'm a former football player, former linebacker, and I have this deep voice and you might think, oh, like his writing is going to be super aggressive. But my writing has always also been always been reflective and introspective. And so I felt like from the beginning that God has always used my weakness rather than my strength to communicate to people. And that's just something that began in those sermons that was much more introspective and reflective than assertive. And it's carried into what became my writing career. Hmm. Uh, you have the line where you say, I wanted to show another side of me, the part with sensitivity, the part that struggled. Yeah. One of the things, if you, if you, if you don't, if you don't know, this might not have been a thing in Austin, but in Alabama, they had this, um, this thing that whenever you, you took a picture, you get like five black guys in the picture. We're all like meme of the camera. So there wasn't yeah, any smile. Sure. You was kind of looking tough. And I always thought that's a little stupid. I'm going to smile. So I was like, I always had this big smile on my face as Dude. my way of saying rebelling against this kind of, before toxic masculinity was a thing, before we knew it you was toxic. The, we, we, okay. It, my, uh, the people I work with just celebrated my birthday, like literally an hour ago. And we, they made them all wear black shirts. Cause that's what I wear every day. And yeah. they said, let's all get a picture. And someone literally said, okay, no one smiled because I guess I don't smile in pictures like I mean mug or something. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm going, all right, that's, okay, that's thank you go. for referring it's, to that yeah, as like, you, toxic you masculinity. It, 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 it's, it's okay. It's okay to be happy. Okay. It's all like, right. I cannot right. believe someone is, is etching this picture of me forever in time. So I got to look like I'm upset about it. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like in the 1800s, like no one smiled in pictures because they thought their soul was being taken away or something. I have no I idea. Like I, I, I just... felt like, yeah, I think cause it took like an hour to take the picture and you had to like stand there. Maybe that's still it. while maybe they were doing it. it. And like, but yeah. you're smiling. I, I, you know, I, maybe I need to smile more. But the point yeah. is, you know, you were rebelling against that from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. Okay. Um, the book is going to be out in a couple of weeks. You have written plenty of things. I assume, is it fair to say none of them are as uh, personal or uh, have as much vulnerability in the writing as this? And so, in light of that and the book being released in a couple of weeks, how are you feeling about it so far? I think I think one of the things that gave me permission to tell the truth is if you look at the narratives in the Bible, it has everything. It has the good and the bad. It has the, the times where people really mess things up. I'm reading through the story of David and Absalom and the way that David's failure to do justice um, over the rape of Absalom's sister has these cascading effects um, yeah. all throughout the rest of even the history of the kingdom of Israel. And I feel like sometimes we have to be honest and we can trust that God can handle that honesty. And so in the writing of this book, I was as honest as I knew how to be in the hopes that God might use that honesty to benefit someone else. And so I'm nervous, right? Everyone's nervous when, when you're vulnerable. And I don't know. And, and the other thing that was true is I'm a New Testament scholar. So we're supposed to kind of progress in society by showing the world how smart and how competent we are. That's what we're supposed to do. We're the ones who know the Greek and the Hebrew and the German and the historical context. And we kind of progress in our careers. 
by revealing their expertise over and over again across numerous publications. But my, in my deepest, the deepest part of me, and I want to say this as respectfully as I possibly can, I don't really care about the academy. In the sense of, not that I don't really care, my main object of attention is not the academy and winning the affection of the 1% of the world that has the PhD, have PhDs. Yeah. My, my concern has always been the community that shaped me, the people who helped me um, survive in those places. And I always felt I had a responsibility to serve them before I served the academy. That's probably the accurate way of putting it. And so the academy can never be my, be my master. And so I'm trying to serve my community by telling the truth about the ways in which it, it shaped me and the ways in which the people in that community had a profound impact on how I, I, I saw the world. And these stories, and this is the important part, these stories that you read wouldn't let me go. They, 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 they kind of, like, I couldn't move forward um, and, and it set them aside. They came with me wherever I went. And, mm -hmm. and what I want to do is, is tell these stories to the world in such a way that it wouldn't let them go either. Like, in other words, these stories are going to grab a hold to you. And, mm -hmm. and hopefully it'll, it'll change you the way that it changed me. And so I'm hoping that by introducing my community to the world, my community can affect the world the way that it affected me. Previous title, uh, Reading While Black. If, uh, if you had to give recommendation for someone who's going to be reading the story of a black man who grew up in struggle and your parents and your grandparents and great parents, how would you recommend reading this book while white? How do you think? Well, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. I'm glad that you asked that question. So one of the things that is, um, I think people get wrong is they think that stories can't, that the universal stories can't be particular. And the truth is, any true story, even if it's completely alien to your experiences, can have a profound impact on you. I'm, a, I'm assuming that none of us know what it's like to be a Jewish girl during the Holocaust, but the diary of Anne Frank had a profound impact on us. And so none of us were hobbits, right? <laughs> Living in Middle <laughs> Earth. But we can all... Speak for like, yourself. <laughs> speak for yourself. Yeah. Um, but, but we can all... We can all identify. And so I think that we, I think that a well-drawn story from a particular place, because it's at bottom a human story, can speak across cultures. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, nobody really um, questions, like, should, like, black people read stories to white protagonists? We just kind of assume that the person can kind of, even though it's not their context, they can get it and they can understand it. Mm -hmm. But there's this idea that when it's a black story, it's closed off. And so both in Reading While Black and How Far to the Promised Land, of course, these are narratives rooted in black spaces, but they're human narratives. And what I really wanted to do was like, you know, I've never been like a British dude trying to find meaning while meandering around Oxford with a bunch of, in with a bunch of intellectuals. But Surprised by Joy is like, is, is, is a profoundly impactful book for me. And C.S. Right. Lewis's own conversion story. And so part of what How Far to the Promised Land is, is a spiritual odyssey. And I said, you know, why can't we have a universal spiritual odyssey that deals with questions of, of evil and providence and the existence of God and conversion that happens in the American South and in all black space? Because that's my story. And I feel like that story, because it's true 
and it's human is useful to everybody who came from radically different places. One of my favorite writers is Flannery O'Connor. And I do not know what it's like to be a Southern Catholic woman with lupus. But like, I still love her work. And so I really think that, um, and I'm not saying that I'm Flannery O'Connor or C.S. Lewis or Tolkien or any of those people. What I'm saying is that beautiful stories that contain something of the human spirit have the ability to reach across culture and touch us. And, I, and if I did a good job on how far to the promised land, even though it's from a particular place, hopefully it'll be useful to people from a variety of cultures. As someone who's not from Huntsville, um, never lived in Alabama, never been black, uh, never experienced what you did, I found the story to be deeply moving on a very human level. And I would encourage all my listeners to go get a copy of this book. You will not be disappointed. Esau, you did something great. Congratulations on this. And um, I'm really happy for you. Thank you. If they ever do make a, a movie and they start the movie with, a podcast interview after the book release, who do you want to play you in the movie version <laughs> you, of the podcast interview? <laughs> okay, you didn't answer the question about yourself. Um, so uh, I will answer the I'll play the game. Um, I gave yeah. you two characters. I gave you Viola and Denzel. Mom and Dad. Okay, so you're. I, I'm going to pick a character for it. We're going to go, okay. I don't know, Jonathan Majors maybe, I guess. I don't know. Jonathan, a, for me? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're in B, Marvel. Michael, Michael B. Jordan. Oh, what's the guy who was in... Um, Sorry, he's gonna he's gonna probably hate me, but who was the guy who was in Star Wars? Oh, bro, I didn't watch Star Wars. That no, the thing. new one with the the the, yeah, the, um, the black the black guy the guy who I played Ben in Star Wars. I want him to be me as a kid, but he's too old. Okay. But yeah, I want him. Okay, okay. well, uh, I, go for it. I don't I don't I don't do there Star we go. Wars. So I've given you um, somebody. Um, who do I want? Uh, I mean, we'll just let's just go. Um, Matthew McConaughey. He's from yeah. Texas. I'll take that. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. We're done. I mean, We're done. We're good. I feel like I'm a couple years younger but okay that's fine um that's fine anyway Esau, congrats man thank you for having me good stuff 